0: to the Stories from the Field podcast, the podcast where we talk to political scientists about how we know what we know and what field research looks like on the ground. I'm Ora Sackley, Associate Professor of Political Science at Clark University and Director of the Program of Peace and Conflict Studies, and I am joined by my co-host Peter Krauss, Associate Professor of Political Science at Boston College and Research Affiliate in the MIT Security Studies Program. Hey, Peter, how are you?
1: I'm doing well. It's a sunny day here in Boston and potentially hopefully a sunnier future in the US uh, with the vaccine doing well. So I'm very very happy and optimistic for a change. How about you? Me too.
0: It is a it is an odd feeling. Uh, optimism, but I'm I'm going to go with it.
1: Yeah, guarded optimism, of course there's still a lot Guarded of,
0: optimism, exactly. A lot of
1: challenges to come, but uh, in any case, if you're new to the podcast, in every episode we talk with political scientists about some of the most important aspects of doing field research based on the book we co-edited with the same title, Stories from the Field, A Guide to Navigating Fieldwork in Political Science. On today's episode, we're talking about teaching field research methods, both inside and outside of the classroom. So, Aura, how do you talk to your students about field research? What works? What doesn't? What are your thoughts on
0: this? Well, you know, I don't teach a research methods class, but I do find myself talking to my students about my fieldwork in a number of different ways. For one thing, I find that sharing stories about like actual people who are involved in the events that I'm teaching about really humanizes the region that I teach, which is the Middle East, in ways that I think are really important. Talking about uh, how these events affect, you know, like individual people and the experiences that some of those folks have shared with me. I find that that is helpful for students because it It demystifies the region a little bit, and I think makes the folks who are experiencing the events we're talking about in class. It it makes them feel closer, and it makes them feel you know a bit more relatable. I also think it is super useful for students to learn a bit about like how the sausage gets made in political science. To talk about the research process, to talk about well, you know, like we're reading this journal article, and here's how I think you know these people collected their data based on their method section. Let's talk a little bit about you know what that looks like. In practice. I think that also helps to make research itself feel a little bit more accessible to students. And so then, you know, like when I have students who are interested in doing independent research on their own, I think they feel a little bit more prepared. It feels like less of a jump. So if they have to go through the IRB process, for instance, they kind of already have a sense of what that's going to look like. And it it makes it all seem a little bit more feasible and a little bit less mysterious.
1: How about you? Yeah, I mean, I'd echo your point about personal stories really working and helping, and perhaps that's not surprising. It's one of the motivations we had for the the structure of the book that we co-edited. But um, yeah, I had a couple of things. So, you know, I think that with undergraduate students in particular. So, I do teach masters and PhDs and undergrads, but uh, the majority of what I teach is undergrads. And you know, we didn't have a kind of qualitative or field research methods class at Boston College. I don't think that's unique. I didn't have one in my undergraduate experience either. But I really thought it would be a worthwhile thing for the students because so many of them, especially in international relations, international studies are studying abroad. Some of them are doing honors theses where they're actually doing, you know, original research. And yet I don't think that they have, you know, much training at all in these issues on the ethics of it, the logistical challenges. So on the one hand, you want to make kind of the teaching of these field methods accessible and engaging. And, you know, for undergrads, they might have a little harder time if you just throw, you know, 440-page articles about you know, field methods at them. But at the same time, you don't want it to be shallow or unserious. Um, and I think you can talk to them about bias, about positionality, about how to set up a semi-structured interview, You know how you have an impact on the society, their community that you're engaging with, all of these things. And I think that they get that stuff and they're really thirsty for that knowledge. So in terms of the class that I taught, I did it for the first time this past semester. Um, I brought in not just you know stories and uh, some of the findings from our book, but also a lot of great research. Actually, some from um, the syllabi that are uh, posted online on advancing uh, research and conflict from you know Millie and Sarah, who we're going to talk to later today. But I find that to be really helpful. And I also think even for the students who aren't doing you know field work, I think thinking about these things, whether for undergrads like studying abroad or for grad students who are thinking about you know where the data they're looking at comes from, is really helpful. Like there was this article that one of our authors, John Macaulay, suggested to me by Courtney Martin called the reductive seduction of other people's problems. And it just talks a lot about, you know, what it's like to on the one hand be attracted to, you know, wanting to help the world and wanting to understand something about a community, but then also at the same time, you know, grappling with these whole like, you know, American or white savior complex or these types of issues that we all know very well, but that, you know, really unpacking in a classroom is not something that I think a lot of us have an experience with. So I found those conversations to be incredibly helpful, and uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing from Jesse, Millie, and Sarah about how they've taught uh, field research methods because, you know, not too many people do it, but a growing number do, and I think there's a lot of great, you know, lessons and tools we can learn from each other.
0: Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to this conversation as well.
1: Yeah, ditto. So, you know, we are so excited to be joined by three scholars who have extensive experience both doing and teaching field research. Jesse Driscoll, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of California, San Diego. Millie Lake, Associate Professor of International Security at the London School of Economics, Department of International Relations. And Sarah Parkinson, Aronson Assistant Professor of Political Science and International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. We'll begin by chatting with each guest individually before bringing them together for a panel discussion. So actually, we're going to start with a small group of Millie and Sarah who have worked together to create this excellent initiative. On advancing research and conflict. Welcome, Millie and Sarah.
2: Thank you. Thanks so much, Peter and Aura.
1: It's great to have you here. And um, you know, today's focus is going to be on teaching field research. But of course, we would love to hear a little bit about your own field work and your own experience first. So, could you tell our listeners a little bit about your own field research background? And uh, Sarah, let's start with you.
2: Great. Thanks, Peter. I'm now at the point where I have, when I was writing this out, like four projects, which is terrifying. For my first big project, I conducted two years of ethnographic fieldwork among Palestinian militant groups in Lebanon. So I have a book manuscript that will be published soon on that particular project. And given how things in my field site changed due to the Syrian civil war, I then actually did some immersive research on Palestinian refugees' relationships with Syrian refugees with an emphasis on service access. And I've also spent two months in Iraq, specifically the Kurdistan region and Nineveh province, studying ethical communities of practice in conflict-affected spaces. And the specific goal with that work was to compare everyday ethical challenges that academics, humanitarians, and journalists spaced in such spaces. And finally, building on the lessons that I learned from these projects, and particularly from interacting with frontline healthcare providers, my new work is actually on military organizations involvement in disaster response. So for that project, I've just gone through emergency medical technician training, and will hopefully be doing some ethnographic work with that project as well.
1: Fascinating. Well, I know we think so much about you know how states get involved with uh, disaster response, but that's fascinating to think about how you know non-state organizations do the same. So looking forward to hearing and, and reading more about that. We'll come back to that in just a moment, but I'd love to hear also from Millie in terms of a little bit about your background in terms of your field research.
3: Yeah, thanks so much, Peter and Aura, and thanks for creating this platform and this space for the conversation. So I guess I wanted to maybe start by saying that for me it's been helpful to think of the field not as a place that I go to do research, but as a site of inquiry and, and the process of doing the research that I do. And, and for me, that site of inquiry is, is violence, which is present everywhere. So most of my academic research so far has taken place. In environments affected by war, but um, because violence is is present everywhere, depending on the questions I'm asking, the field changes from you know from from project to project. That said, my journey as a researcher began in Central Africa, where I worked as a human uh, for a human rights organization prior to beginning graduate school, and that's where I'd been working most recently before I started my PhD. So I was based in DR Congo for a little bit over a year as part of my dissertation research. But since then, I've worked in a range of different contexts affected by war, most recently in 10 different post-conflict contexts through the Women's Rights After War Project. And I think because of my prior role as a practitioner, it took me a pretty long time to undergo this transition to researcher or to like wearing a researcher hat. And among many of the things that I really grappled with during this transition was a tension that emerged between, I think, wanting to understand how systems of law and power and justice, from the perspectives of those who are most marginalized by those systems, like how those systems are experienced, and a desire to to center ordinary people's stories in my research while kind of navigating the extractive approaches to research that political science often fosters or or creates permissive conditions for. So because much of my fieldwork still takes place in contexts adjacent to war and affected by legacies of colonialism a, a thread and a tension that still runs through my research is is that commitment i think to understanding violence as it is experienced through ordinary people's lived experiences of it while navigating the reality that most of those of the kind of systems of knowledge production that we're embedded within is inherently extractive, and so f- figuring out how to negotiate that is the 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 proce- Like my process, I think of doing field work.
0: That's fascinating, and actually, sort of touches on what, what both of you just shared with us. I think kind of touches on one of the reasons we particularly wanted to invite the two of you to join us for the podcast, and that's your role in founding. Uh, advanced research on conflict or ARC. Um, so we were hoping you could tell us a little bit about how you decided to start this consortium and uh, how you got it off the ground. What was what was your decision making process and what did launching this look like?
2: I can start with that. <laughs> So we've been thinking about these issues together for a really long time, and specifically since we met in 2013 at the University of Minnesota. And I think both of us had faced tough situations of varying degrees and genres during fieldwork. And we also knew that others had. And we're not at all the first people to say that there are a lot of topics that people who do various types of fieldwork talk about informally or a lot of issues that we talk about informally, but often don't put in publications or don't treat as methodological issues. And we also knew from colleagues, Kate Cronin-Furman and Stephanie Schwartz, who fielded a survey in 2017 on field training in political science, that just a lot of people felt that they didn't have either adequate field training or advanced field training and weren't in a good space to do the research that they had wound up doing, right? A lot of people felt that they were in situations that they either were not prepared to handle or were uncomfortable handling or that they felt they could have been informed about before they found themselves in these situations. And these spanned anything from dealing with illness in the field to managing research teams to dealing with other researchers sort. Of uh questionable ethical behavior in the field. And we started having much more intentional discussions with colleagues, people like Leanne Fuji in particular, around 2015 and started putting together pertinent conference roundtables. So there was one in 2015 on the ethical and methodological lessons of Boston College, which I know Peters thought a lot about. There was one at ISA the following year on immersive fieldwork. And then the one that really sort of culminated a lot or sort of brought Together, a lot of our thinking and several people to whom we've been speaking about these issues was at ISA in 2018, which was the Ethics of Fieldwork Preparedness. And this riffed on both a piece that we wrote for Political Violence at a Glance in 2017 that came out of our attempts to look at how people in other fields had been trained and to think about is this appropriate for political science researchers? So we actually attended in 2016 what's called a hostile environment and first aid training and concluded that 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 was not the right uh, approach for uh, political scientists or for academics writ large, but that there were some really good lessons to be learned from thinking through what does it mean to work as a professional in uh, fragile and violence-affected spaces. Millie, is there anything I missed here?
3: No, I mean, I think that was pretty comprehensive. I was just going to add, I guess, that or reiterate something that you said, which is that I think both of us felt really quite... Let down and underprepared by the training that we had received in our respective um, graduate education, and that, that
2: I actually sorry. I would put that different given who my mentors well, were. But yes,
3: I, w- I mean I was just going to say I think we we felt pretty underprepared in our graduate training in, in a lot of ways. And that was a sentiment that is shared by many comparativists that I know doing fieldwork. And that's that's certainly not to criticize anyone on our committees or in our particular institutions. I think each of whom were very invested in preparing us in the ways that they were able to, but it, it reflects an institutional and discipline wide lacuna in, in fieldwork training and preparedness, which is really unfortunate, I think, because so many scholars do fieldwork in some capacity, even those working working with observational data, often relying on someone somewhere having done kind of human subjects facing research in the compilation of that data. It's very rare for for data that emerges in in even the most kind of observational or desk based research projects to have had no field work at all um, kind of contribute to, to those those bodies of data. And Yet the glaring absence of any real kind of discipline wide conversation about training and education as to what that means, let alone how to do it is really striking. And I think that's a particularly dangerous omission that is often, you know, kind of compensated for and made up by individual faculty members who are really committed and maybe put on specific courses within particular grad programs. But that doesn't, that doesn't really make up for the, the, the absence of the prioritization and centering of this type of of training in the field and I think it for those who conduct research adjacent to violence or in contexts affected by war this this omission is particularly dangerous because the stakes of any missteps or potential missteps are really high and I think when both of us started grad school, there was a really strongly held perception, which I think is still pretty widely held among, you know, in a lot of, uh, of corners of, of the field, that, that fieldwork is something that you learn on your feet through a process of trial and error and through messing up and getting wrong and kind of learning as you go. And I, I always think back to that blog post that was published many years ago, which is called something like, the developing world is not your classroom. Your first stint, a field work shouldn't be an opportunity to make mistakes and learn on the job because real people's lives are often deeply and profoundly uh-huh. affected. So we started ARC with the desire to foster critical self-reflection around the many challenges and dilemmas that that researchers are likely to face in the course of doing research to try and work with students to anticipate and make sense of some of the implications of these decisions as they may arise so that people are not wading into situations that they're kind of unfamiliar with, unprepared to navigate that terrain. And, And we wanted the decisions that scholars make in the field to be Made with as much care and reflexivity as possible, and with attention to the myriad possible harms that might emerge from those choices, in an effort to kind of mediate or, or mitigate some of these spur of the moment decisions that can have real negative consequences, particularly in in war affected environments.
0: Yeah, you know, go ahead, Aura. <laughs> uh, well, I was just going to say, I'm really struck in listening to the two of you talk about the some of the gaps that you wanted to address uh, by founding Arc or the. Maybe not even gaps, but the the things that you thought that we could institutionalize. I'm just I'm struck by some of the similarities in your thinking and the conversations that Peter and I had when we were talking about putting together stories from the field. So in in some ways it it feels as if there are a lot of parallel conversations happening in the discipline about okay, how do we do this better? What how what can we offer graduate students that you know, that maybe we weren't offered ourselves or that, you know, we that we really appreciate it and we want to make sure that other people in the discipline have access to. It, it does feel like there are lots of different versions of this conversation. And I'm, I'm really delighted to have had the opportunity to, to have you share your version of this conversation. To follow up
1: on that, could I ask a question, which is, you know, the advancing research on conflict you guys have now run I believe, a summer program for for a couple of years. Is that right, Sarah?
2: Uh, Yes, we've been able to run it twice. We had the first one in 2018, then again in 2019. And unfortunately, last year, I think we admitted a cohort probably right around today of last year and couldn't move forward with the program. But the program is, and we should note, we couldn't have done this without amazing support from the London School of Economics. And then that was for the first time we ran this. And for the second session, Johns Hopkins and the London School of Economics supported the program. It's a residential week long training where we basically bring 16 students and do a week of mixed classroom based and simulation training. So, everything from how to train a research team in the field, how to do interviewing, I call it asking without asking. So, not your sort of typical semi structured interview, but you want to ask about difficult topics. How do you do so without just straight up asking head on in a way that would be a Offensive or problematic or just re traumatizing. So, what we really like doing is sort of fostering the sense of community among students and giving them space to talk about their projects with each other, to talk about ethical issues that they might be facing. We do some scenario based training, talking through how people would manage different situations in the field. And what's really come out of it, I think, is two exceptionally strong student cohorts. And then we bring them into our annual conference, which is directly afterwards in two days. And to get into the program, they've submitted a project, like a two or three page research summary, and we pair them with scholars who are doing similar work, either in a similar region or on similar topics, and have them talk through the research design with these scholars and then have panel based discussions about issues ranging from positionality in the field to North South collaborations to working through illness in the field to managing family relationships in the field, which is something a lot of these issues are just ones that are sort of placed to the side as like, oh, that's personal in political science, except it's really not, right? All of this falls into the greater category, I think, for us of methodological concerns and things that affect how a researcher interacts with their research.
1: 100% agree. Our, our next actually podcast episode is going to be with uh, Ravi Perry and Sarah zuckerman Daly about personal safety and illness and health in the field. So I totally agree. It's It's often overlooked. And you know, hearing about the program and kind of its origin story, I think a little bit about something else I encountered when I was a graduate student, which was, you know, also just a broad sense, the lack of qualitative methods training. And so you had IQMR, which is somewhat similar in the sense of saying, you know, these are not being, these lessons are not being taught to many graduate students, but then we can have this kind of, you know, outside of your program, you know, one week or two week uh, training. And I'll tell you beyond just the lessons you get from something like that, I think, as you're saying, Building that cohort and those connections is amazing. I mean, some of my best friends and colleagues in political science to this day are these people that I went to IQMR with when I was a graduate student. So I think you guys are having a real impact there. If I could ask Amelia a follow-up question, you know, Sarah, I think did a great job laying out some of the specific uh, curriculum and what you guys teach. Could you talk a little bit about how you do this kind of applied training? Because I would say that when I was in grad school, I certainly, you know, read some stuff about doing field research. Uh, and talked about it in the classroom, but I didn't have any applied training. So is that something that you focus on in your summer program?
3: Yeah, for sure. And I think, yeah, I mean, as Sarah kind of recounted, our, our training is incredibly applied. We, we integrate first aid training as kind of a core piece of the program, of the week-long residential program, and then also various simulations and activities. And And we do most of the training actually is outdoors, not in the classroom. We feel that this helps us build the type of intensity and rapport and relationships that foster active and collective learning and kind of mimic in some ways the learning on your feet that is so familiar to many of us who have learned from our own fieldwork experiences. And so while the setting is obviously quite removed from the context many of our participants are conducting research in. We do try and emulate a little bit of the, the experience of of and, and practice of doing research by moving around and, and and building these relationships and kind of being in situations that are that that force quick decisions and the the building of trust among among colleagues and research partners and collaborators. And I think just even being outside doing this, moving around puts you in a bit of a different mindset. So yeah, I don't know if Sarah, you wanted to add anything to that.
2: Yeah, I think the thing that I would add is often Millie and I have both taught methods in the classroom at varying academic levels. But when you think about a lot of the work that's being done in fragile and violence affected spaces, much of it is with what is loosely referred to as vulnerable populations. But much of it, I think more importantly, is extremely personal and intimate and thinking through, well, have we ever actually interacted ourselves as researchers with many of the questions that we're asking other people and expecting them to answer? Right. And one of the things we do is put people outside at a table under a tree, whatever, and have them go through some of the surveys that people have administered, which very quickly get into people's romantic relationships, for example. And I think it's one thing to sort of do an interview or a semi-structured elite interview simulated in a classroom. And it's quite another to have someone who you met maybe two days ago, all of a sudden asking about your personal relationships, your finances, for example, and to have people think through what that feels like and how we can better design a lot of research in a way so that you don't get that immediately like, you're asking me what now? And that these are the kinds of things that we are asking researchers to consider before they go into the field, right? Things that have often been portrayed as just how things are done in our discipline are things that we actually unpack and say, okay, methodologically, is there a more both respectful way to do this and a way that will generate better data, right? That's, all I'd add. So
0: I want to ask a little bit more about, I don't know, the the sort of the personal connections and the ways that we bring our own life experiences into the classroom as teachers and also as students. Do you find that um, you need to adjust your teaching a bit and the content based on who's in your classroom in terms of their specific research interests, in terms of like the kind of field work that they're interested in doing? How much of this do you feel is generalizable and how much of it is specific to the individual researcher based both on you know their research interests and also just like who we are as people.
3: Yeah, I I guess what I would say to that is one of the main lessons I guess that we try and impart throughout the the residential program is I don't know, I think for me is is kind of trying to locate your politics before before you embark on the process of doing research and before you you leave for the field in, in inverted commerce wherever that might be for you. And this is something that political scientists aren't often taught to center, but we want scholars to really like work to locate the values and politics that underpin their research and to be transparent and honest about those politics with themselves and then and then kind of try and work through how to center the interests of those who might might be most affected by the research either while it's ongoing or in in its publication and dissemination. And so because the majority of of the of the training is is built around asking questions of yourself as a human being first and a kind of a researcher second, these questions are relevant no matter who you are or what type of research you're doing, and I think we encourage all our p- participants to ask ourselves questions like who is your your research for? Who is who is potentially affected by the choices and the decisions you make? How is your presence in whatever research site you're working in affecting the lives of those that you're interacting with and in what ways? And how might you acquire the knowledge you need to be able to even recognize those, those dynamics and, and think about building the relationships that then sustain your research? Thinking about who benefits from the research you produce and how your research honors honors the values that really underpin the project. And, and, and so power and pos- positionality are really central to all of those questions. And thinking about how to integrate the answers to those questions into every single choice you make in the design, you know, from the design stage of the project to the choices that you make when you arrive in your research site, and you're actually kind of going through the day to day of doing the research, and then thinking about the writing and dissemination and, and, and kind of analytical reflection. So I, I think it's, In that sense, everything we do is, is super generalizable and, and applicable to researchers, no matter what traditions they're working within or where they're, you know, or where their research is located. But that said, of course, identity is super central and important and relationships are super central and important to this process. And it's a, it's a very collaborative experience. So in that sense, who is there in the group really shapes the conversations that, that unfold. Sarah, I don't know if you wanted to...
2: I think of my teaching, so I think of, of my classroom teaching, and I think of the difference between teaching master students who are going to be practitioners versus PhD students who are aiming to be researchers, whether within academia or outside of academia. And then I think specifically of ARC, which is constructed around this idea of doing research in fragile and violent and affected contexts. And the first thing I would say is that one of the things with ARC that we have very much been really serious about since the beginning is methodological pluralism and saying that it doesn't matter what methods you plan to use, there are lessons that are generalizable across methods, which I think the discipline sometimes sort of indicates isn't true. But thinking through, as Millie was saying, how ideas about reflexivity and positionality can be brought to bear on any research design, but also thinking about, you know, micro mechanisms, for example, in the way that a lot of experimentalists do has lessons for people who are operating in other research traditions. So I think, that there is first that sort of approach and thinking through how there are even lessons from different methodological traditions that can inform each other if not and i say use the word inform as opposed to this is how everyone should be doing it right so it's the how to think through not necessarily how to do the other part here is that and this will probably come up later in the interview is that especially when it comes to fieldwork in fragile and violence affected spaces our field and it's it's undeniable i think that our field has been shaped by very particular assumptions of who the researcher is, and that is usually a white cisgender straight man from the global north. And that affects how the discipline thinks about and treats and has expectations about objectivity, neutrality, and how a researcher's presence affects their fieldwork, if people even discuss how a researcher's presence affects their fieldwork. But it also shapes how fieldwork is often thought about as this sort of like test or hurdle or like Indiana. Jones like adventure. And this gets back to some of what Millie was saying earlier about extraction, right? And Tim Patrick has used the, the metaphor of fracking, for example, where people go out aggressively and like frack for data and then bring it back. And something that we knew about for ARC and that I think also our conversations around ARC have pushed me to do much more seriously is to think about the reality of how people engage with and experience time in the field in very, very different ways, including as their home. And that the discipline really needs to provide more space to engage with these more diverse experiences and that our teaching needs to be much more deliberate in terms of bringing in experiences that are not ours and to being loyal to the fact that there is so much amazing work going on, but that just not everyone is the same researcher and that not everyone is going to have the same experience of research. And this is one of the reasons why we put together the ARC Bibliography, just because there is so much extraordinary work, but it's also it's a real task to go through all of it. So we we're hoping to make a lot of that more accessible to people.
0: Thank you so much for sharing your thinking around ARC and around teaching field research more generally. We're going to be back with you shortly, Millie and Sarah, but uh, I'd like to now bring in Jesse Driscoll, Associate Professor of Political Science at UCSD. Welcome, Jesse.
4: Hey, thanks for having me. And it's a real honor to be here.
0: Thank you for joining us. So um, again, today's focus is on teaching field research. But would you like to start by telling our listeners a little bit about your own research?
4: Yeah, sure. I did field work on state-society relations in the former Soviet Union. And specifically, I ended up writing my dissertation and then my first book on the question of why the post-Soviet wars were so short in comparative context. So There are different ways to ask the question, but, you know, what did the Russian peacekeepers get right? You know, how did the settlement processes play out in situations where you know the UN Blue Hats are going to be Russian special forces, not Americans, not the French? So I spent a lot of time living in Tajikistan and Georgia to write this dissertation, and that became my book. And in terms of what I did while I was there, I, I, I liked Millie's phrase, adjacent to violence. That was me. I adapted. I spent a lot of time talking to former combatants, and to meet those combatants, I decided that it was a good idea to spend a lot of time living in country and doing observations. So I lived out in a village on the Tajik-Afghan border for a while, uh, Kalehum. I lived in Bishkek, the Asamvai uh with a family working on... I was working on my Russian at the time. I wasn't talking to combatants very much. But I was there in the aftermath of the Tulip Revolution of 2005 and the Andijan events across the border in Uzbekistan. The internet stopped working right. That was very disorienting for me. I just did a lot of growing up really fast. I also worked with a group in Georgia called the Caucasus Research Resource Centers on various surveys and experiments. Georgia has a big NGO community, and I accessed that. And all of this took place over a drifting block of three to four years. So it was kind of a long time. But I knew I wanted to be a Central Asianist, and I knew I had a lot of catching up to do. And graduate school gives you a lot of unstructured time. So I took advantage of that.
0: So can you tell us a little bit about how these field research experiences impacted not just your scholarship, but also your teaching?
4: Yeah, I can try.
0: I know that's I mean, I a very can... broad question, right? Like our field research shapes everything about us as scholars.
4: Yeah. I mean, having just finished a book with a sweeping title, like doing global field work, the trite thing to say is that my field work can't be separated from my scholarship and my teaching. And I, I can say that honestly at this moment, but I guess I could say a few things. I think the first thing is that I'm a white CIS gendered guy from the global North. And I referee now a lot of papers that are written by those people. And that's part of my job. And I have to say I'm very grateful for the fact that I can stand at a bit of a distance from the community of people who parachute in and collect data sets in an extractive way. And I really only have the authority to stand at that distance because I spent a lot of time on the ground. And I can easily imagine another version of myself floating around the multiverse that was refereeing all of these papers as a kind of a technical reader on the merits of the identification strategy and nothing else. And that's not me. And that's a real impact that I can point to. I can point to specific things about my scholarship, the arguments that I make in my book. So I work with a civil war settlement model where no one disarms and the great powers don't actually care very much about the individual identities of the local violence providers. I call them warlords. That's pejorative. But if you call them something else, if you call them field commanders, the larger point is that I'm interested in context where the great power really doesn't even pretend to bother about keeping these people straight. And I think that that is an assumption, a very, very strong modeling assumption, that if I were just making it on a whiteboard, I wouldn't be confident it was the right assumption. But because I have some kind of lived experience and have reappropriated other people's lived experiences, but in a way that I hope is self-aware, I feel like that's a viable assumption. And I think that's important. So there's a lot of ways to think about this, whether it's construct validity or whether it's just getting your assumptions right in a way that is locally valid for your subjects. You know, I actually value that. And I noticed that I value that when I evaluate my students' work or other people's work. And it's not the only way to do it. You can easily approach civil wars with other assumptions. You can take two-player bargaining dynamics, and that reveals certain things. But that's not the modeling assumptions that I took when I was doing my work. I guess I could say more on that, but probably with other questions, we'll get at it. Teaching. I work at a professional school. I'm certain that my master's students respect my opinions more when I talk about places that I've lived. And I work with a lot of military students and they're just pretty no nonsense. They let you know when they're bored. With PhD training, I try to impress on graduate students that there are just huge professional advantages to collecting your own data. If you want to be a political scientist in the field of comparative politics, you really do need to collect your own data in order to get your career started. There are exceptions to this rule, but they're quite rare. And so I just want to echo everything that was said uh, by Sarah and Millie. You know, like this is not taught very well. The practical getting started making your own data set is not emphasized in our training courses as much as matters of design or methods ends up being essentially math hazing. And that's not oftentimes what you need in order to go get started collecting your own data set or your own data. There are different ways to think about data. Maybe data set is is a loaded term, but at UCSD anyway, that is what most of our students think they want to do, but don't know how to get started.
0: I love the expression math hazing. (laughs)
1: Yeah, well, they, that's what math camp is. Well, like we need methods or ethics camp. I don't know. Well, that's but, what ARC uh, is. To dig into that a little bit more, Jesse, can you just tell us about, so you said, you know, you teach military students, you teach masters, you teach PhDs. Sarah was also talking about, you know, teaching different populations. Can you just give us a sense of, you know, how you actually structure, you know, your classroom on field research? And you said, you know, it's really important for people to learn how to kind of gather their own information or their own observations. So, What does that actually look like in the classroom? Can you give us kind of a a quick overview of like, you know, your syllabus or what types of lessons you feel like really resonate with students in
4: that regard and the ways that you're doing it? I can, but it's going to be a little bit of a lawyer's dodge. So I think that it's important to say at the outset that I haven't actually taught a class on doing field methods that's not how most of my mentorship and teaching has gone. What we do at UCSD is put a strong emphasis on individuated mentorship for these. And I think that there are good reasons for that. I have good experience of being in the classroom, getting advanced research methods for the field. It was taught by Jeremy Weinstein. And What we essentially did was workshop each other's research designs to maximize the probability that at the end of collecting the data, if things went according to plan, you would have a good-looking paper or three good-looking papers for a dissertation or something like that. But what you jettison are all of the practical matters, which frankly are too site-specific or idiosyncratically student-specific to get at in a useful way in a classroom setting. So let's hypothetically hold the research problem constant. Let's say you're interested in gender and voting behavior, and let's also hold the demography kind of constant. Let's say that it's going to be citizens in a low voter turnout rural area. It still matters a lot whether it's rural Kenya or rural Kyrgyzstan. Like The kinds of things that would be the background reading for a course are really quite different for those two projects. More importantly is the stuff that I think Sarah was referring to quite eloquently about how individual normative reasons that you're doing that work are going to inevitably change the data collection process and the interpretation afterwards. I don't want to give short shrift to Millie either. I mean, I think the conversation, the way that they structure it about how the deep normative reasons that people are doing the research they are doing Need to be put front and center in the design process. I just think that that's handled better in an individual mentorship way than in a classroom, frankly. And I, I think that ultimately classrooms are good at what they're good at. You know, they're good at crowdsourcing the basic science questions, which are salient for everybody in the research prospectus design phase. And so that doesn't lend itself to these fieldwork conversations, but If you're assuming that the purpose of the journey to the field is going to be to gather empirical data, a classroom can be a very good place to figure out, okay, well, what are you trying to estimate? How are you trying to do it? What are the mechanisms consistent with your theory? What are the heterogeneous effects going to look like? What would a test be? Are you going to have enough power? Do you want to pre-register this thing? I mean, all that kind of stuff is good for a classroom, but it's almost orthogonal to the conversation on the grounds that Millie and Sarah were proposing it. And so I haven't put together a class yet on that.
2: No,
1: that makes sense. And so, you know, in many ways, this is one of the reasons that ARC, which, you know, Millie and Sarah are running, is is potentially an optimal environment because, again, it has some of the classroom aspects, but also the kind of applied uh, and individualized aspects that you're talking about. So. Just to follow up on that, can you then talk a little bit about how you have kind of done the individual mentorship with people? I mean, I I remember when I was in grad school, there were some people who would go with you know their mentor like Roger Peterson or someone and see like in the field, here's how you do an interview, here's how you approach um, a community, and kind of you know introduce yourself and all of those things. Like, is that stuff you've done, or how have
4: you felt like individual mentorship has worked uh, in your experience? That's a great question. I think it kind of comes in three phases. You know, the first is that there's a lot loaded into pre-field work, which is essentially reducible to going out with a good plan. And oftentimes, this is what I think classrooms are good at. And I think this is what our training sequences are when they work at their best. There's two other phases, though. The first is adjustments that need to take place in the field. And I spend a lot of time on email with students who are trying to adjust in the field. And then there's a big post-field work part of this too, which hasn't really been addressed very much, but is very important, which is how disorienting it is to come back with data and feel like you need to immediately commodify it for the job market. That is a very tough, bruising transition for a lot of people. I think that there's often psychological damage that takes place in the field, which is easily understandable once you draw attention to it. And I have done a lot of closed door conversations that are quite serious with people about matters that are really personal. And that is Again, something that is completely inappropriate in a classroom setting. And all the more so because if you're honest, you, you feel imposter syndrome vis-a-vis those eager beaver graduate students getting the research design right. When you come back from the field with real scars and real things that you now know are true about your subjects, but you feel like they're invalidated by the publishing incentives of the discipline, that's really hard. So I end up dealing with that as well. But I don't think that the classroom is the right forum. Thank you for, for. Speaking so frankly about all of
0: that, you know, because I, I think this is maybe a larger conversation that, that we need to be having in the discipline more broadly, but the very personal nature of field research, I think, is something that, that certainly bears more reflection and conversation. So I currently have, sitting on my desk, a copy of your how-to book on field research called Doing Global Fieldwork, which I am super excited to read. (laughs) And I'd like to talk to you a little bit about it. How would you describe your teaching style um, and the lessons about field research that you wanted to share in that book? And what motivated you to want to write it?
4: Well, I'll answer the last part of the question first. I wanted to give myself the opportunity to systematize the advice that I was giving behind closed doors. And I wanted to give other people who are in a pedagogical position similar to mine, some tools that they can use in the planning stage and in the fieldwork cleanup stage. That's the easy answer is that, you know, writing a book is the best way to change other people's syllabi. And I think that there's a lot of syllabi that have a kind of a recommended reading section in week one of the Intro to Comparative Politics field seminar which sort of something like, uh, if you're going to go to the field, you should read this book about how to live out of a backpack. And I I kind of hope to get that recommended reading slot on, on other people's syllabi. But the line that I push in the book to answer the first part of the question is what I call improvisational pluralism. And to summarize it quickly, it would be to say something like, there's a lot of ways that you can do the job. You're going to find that you need to improvise in the field it would be a shame to go so far away and meet so many interesting people and not think about the subjective nature of knowledge creation and let ethnography inform your scholarship in some ways. There's also potentially a role for management, and you should think about how to let other people help you rather than be completely hostile to that view of knowledge creation. It doesn't have to be extractive, to use Millie's term, although oftentimes it is. And then there's a definitely a place for a lot of students, not all of them, but if you're like me, there is a role for thinking systematically about why you're taking the risks that you're taking and how to stop at the end of it, how to stop taking risks. And in the book, I kind of structure the chapters around all of those conversations separately.
0: So in the course of writing the book, I I often find that in the course of of trying to put my ideas on paper, they evolve a little bit. Did you find that the process of writing a book about fieldwork changed how you thought about field work did it like crystallize certain ideas that you'd always had about field work but that were never um that you never made explicit to yourself what was that like definitely
4: <laughs> yeah i could obviously answer this question over 2 or 3 hours but i'll try to do it in 90 seconds i would focus on two parts of the answer the first is that i had to do a lot of systematic thinking about ethics and i'm not used to thinking of myself as an ethicist or a role model but i have come to grips with the fact that you really can't shirk that responsibility if you're going to write a book like this. And so, in like the first five pages of the book, I basically quote Omar from The Wire, and I was like, you know, you got to have a code. And I came to that not at the beginning of the writing of the book, but certainly by the end of it. That's not something to bury it midway through chapter five. That's something that needs to be front and center. I would say the second thing that came out that I did not expect was, as a result of referee reports, I was told that I needed to include a subsection in the book about dealing with the intimate relationships that sometimes form between researchers and their local fixers or their local subjects or whatever. That is something that I absolutely did not want to talk about because I don't have any life experience with it. But once I reflected a little bit more on how common that is and how taboo it is to talk about, I decided that it ought to be in the book even though I have no authority over anything in these places, I thought it, it would be good to have it in writing so that people who are in that situation don't feel so alone. Because I think that it is more common than we acknowledge.
1: I think that makes sense. Um, to follow up one more time on, on a similar point, Jesse. So in terms of evolution, you talked a little bit about how your own thinking about fieldwork evolved in, in the course of writing the book. You know, when you look at the field more broadly, you know, you've now you know been a grad student, been a faculty member, you know, someone who's now written a book on doing field research, as you said, been both a mentee and a mentor. How have you seen kind of the field of field research evolving? And how do you see it different from maybe it was 10 or 20 years ago? And where do you hope it might go kind of going forward in the future? How would you potentially like
4: to see a change or evolve? I think the biggest change during my last 10 years is more of a focus on pre-registration and pre-analysis plans. And all of this, I think, comes from a good place normatively. I mean, I think everyone has the best intentions. But I think it is creating a perception among young graduate students that if they go out to the field without a strong sense of what they're going to find, and in fact, what code they're going to use to analyze the data that they're going to find, at the end of the journey, their work is going to be devalued. I don't remember feeling that when I was in early graduate school. And I think that that is a really big change that has resulted from the replication crisis, or you can debate where the change has come from. But I think that there is a very strong feeling that things are different than they used to be. When I started writing this book, I basically started doing non-IRB research on graduate students. I basically just started writing down for myself, systematically, what questions do people come into my office with in pre-field work? And just like, what is what are the highest frequency questions, right? So the number one question by far is how much language training do I actually need to have before I go? Just nuts and bolts. Like, okay, I don't really speak Arabic. I've taken two years of Arabic, and what I know is I don't speak Arabic. So what? Like, am I supposed to do four more years of classroom Arabic before I discover that I still don't know Sanani Amea or what? So that's the highest frequency question. The second highest frequency question is with the door closed. Okay, there's a whole bunch of boomers who don't really get it. Like if I go out there and I do what these people are telling me to do, I'm never going to get a paper in the APSR. I'm never going to get a job. And all these people are telling me that I'm just supposed to go out there and talk to people. But that's not the professional reality that I think I face. So level with me. And the emotion that's loaded into that set of conversations is new. It's like a genuine change in the field. Full stop. I think the second big change in the field is that there is a strong perception by a lot of people that in order to get tenure, you need to have a pipeline of publications. And that lends itself to a sense of lots of little papers, not one big book. And many of my failings, I think, as a young professor come from the fact that I'm basically a book person, and I can basically give you advice about how to write an important book or how to try and i don't always feel as qualified in the paper production space but i feel like that's where the field is moving led by economics and maybe some other trends those are big changes
1: i think those are great points and i think that you're right you know as we all know there's an arms race in terms of publish 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 as soon as possible and, you know, some people in the book that Or and I co-edited, Amani, Jamal, and others talked about, you know, the values of, you know, slower field work and building connections and really having a lifelong commitment and engagement with the community and the difficulty of doing that, given, you know, the incentives we have now for, you know, a smaller and smaller number of, of jobs. Um, I actually, I think this is a great segue to bring Millie and Sarah back into the conversation because I know uh, they've also thought deeply and, and written and been involved in some of these discussions about publication and transparency, quote unquote, and all of these debates about, can we apply the same model when we're doing, you know, pre-registered experiments versus when we're doing field work where we're interviewing people about very sensitive topics. So um, let me just bring Millie and Sarah back in. And, you know, Sarah, maybe I can start with you here. What are your thoughts on some of these issues that Jesse was just talking about regarding kind of where the quote unquote field is going and some of the challenges that people face who want to do field research uh, in this day and age?
2: I have a lot of trouble with this conversation in some ways because I think that what a lot of these conversations mask is some extremely deep structural issues in the discipline to be totally honest. The minute that you're talking about fieldwork, you want to be talking about funding for one, which grad students and which junior faculty and which faculty in general have funding. You're talking about contingent faculty, you're talking about which schools are are better resourced than others. You're talking about the contraction of external funding streams and reliance on government money, which can inevitably shape research trajectories. We know it has, right? We're talking about distinctions between scholars working in Global North and Global South institutions and those incentives. And what I think that winds up getting a lot of play in these discussions is that we have I think that there are a lot more methodological pluralists in this discipline, but that they're not necessarily the loudest voices. And that often in some of the most prestigious programs, grad students very much are getting the message that like, you do this this way or you will fail, right? And it is this apocalyptic, like there's no other way to do it. And that's just untrue if you look at the discipline as a whole. Right. And I also think that there is the whole replication debate as though it's about one form of replication. You don't hear people talking about, for example, revisits, which is one form of, you know, it's not the exact same thing as replication. But ethnographically, like, Boroughway's been writing about revisits for decades, right? So what you see is this sort of consistent there's one way to do things, there's one science. And that's just ridiculous. Like, that's not the way that things are even done in the natural sciences, which are held up as this sort of gold standard. Right. So I, I think it's frustrating. I think it doesn't represent real issues in the field. I think it doesn't actually get at the inequalities that are feeding our discipline that we need to be focusing on those, especially given what COVID has done, where we see what has happened to parents, for example, who like you want to talk about research pipelines, people who are parenting several kids or just one kid are just having fundamentally different experiences than people who have treated COVID as an extended sabbatical and are like, oh, yeah, I got a. This time to publish. When we're talking about people, you know, societies that are going to be dealing with extended grief, right? Like where's the conversation about working with populations on any issue who are grieving and recovering economically from this historical set of events. I would be remiss if I didn't plug the SSRC's extraordinary set of essays in items. And one of them that the ARC crowd wrote for was on like lessons from conflict research for research on Corona. But there was another... Another one that fundamentally said, well, what about this trend that I'm seeing where like Global North researchers can't travel, so they're just going to hire people in the Global South to do their research? Like, where is the credit given? Right? Where is the discussion of labor practices in the discipline? So I agree with Jesse completely in terms of these trends in the field. But I think my message to grad students would be like, there are a ton of us who have done it in other ways and who still have publications in top 10 journals. And that doesn't mean it's easy. And that doesn't mean that reviewers haven't told some of us that we don't do political science. And like, okay, fine, dude, that's your opinion. But I think that there is still space for methodological pluralism and that it's worth fighting for and that a couple of very loud people don't get to define our discipline for us and that there are other issues that we need to be putting front and center because they do affect both the ethical bent of our research and the methodological rigor of it, quite frankly.
1: Amen to that. Well, I I think that you have a very uh, supportive audience in that regard. I know for Aura and I, that was a big part about doing the book is that we really do support methodological pluralism. And you're right that it's kind of like following the news by following Twitter sometimes where you feel like, oh, all it is is people have really strong opinions, and they're running this or that. But then when you actually look at the people around you who are colleagues that you work with, respect, etc, people are much more open minded and doing very thoughtful quality work from a variety of perspectives. So I think that that's well said. And if I could go to Millie on kind of a related question that builds off of that. So, you know, one of the things when we were writing this book was we were thinking about, okay, to what extent do we want to say, okay, here's our approach, here's the way we should kind of think about how to do field work the ethical considerations etc versus recognizing as i think sarah had said very well that you know we have a kind of a big tent field which actually is one of my favorite parts of it i love the fact that vis a vis some of the other social sciences i would say at least from my opinion that poli sci is is quite a big tent in terms of the methodologies that people use in terms of the epistemological you know approaches that people have And so we ultimately opted for kind of what we call like a bottom-up methods book of people from a variety of backgrounds and approaches that aren't necessarily ours, but nonetheless that we have respect for uh, to be part of it. So when you think about, you know, kind of your own career, Amelia, or you guys think about how you're running ARC, I'm interested to know how you adjudicate between kind of these truths or these ways that this is the way things should be done, which again, some of us have said maybe there's there's problems with when we have a focus just on causal identification or pre-registration or whatever. Versus when we kind of have, okay, well, there's a variety of approaches that we support and, you know, here's what I do, but also here's other ways about it. How do you deal with that when you're kind of teaching fieldwork? How do you deal with these issues that I think Jesse and Sarah brought up really well when you're helping to train like the next generation? I know that's a lot there, but I would love to hear. It.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Peter. And yeah, I mean, this is such an important conversation and, and I think um segues really nicely from what Jesse and Sarah were just talking about. But I, I think I want to answer it by kind of returning to and, and maybe pushing back a little bit against some of what was what was said in the last um in the last round of responses, just because I I think I want to be a bit more optimistic about where the field is going and, and I recognize that I'm not at, you know, in the US a US institution at the moment, but I still feel pretty embedded and kind of connected with a lot of mainstream political science circles and I'm I'm fairly adjacent to them and I I think I see a kind of opportunity in the current moment. I think people are paying attention to how data is collected and the ways in which systematic biases shape and infuse the, the kind of results of, of our research and the ways in which power and relations infuse everything that we're doing in, in, in ways that, in a really different way than they were before. And I think this is true in experimental research and conversations about causal identification. I think it's true in qualitative research. And I think it's increasingly true. Um, for people working with observational data, I think just as standards have have risen, I think attention to these questions about the ways in which things that we don't see or that are rendered invisible to us by the the kind of way, you know ways that we have historically done research in mainstream political science departments are becoming more and more transparent. And I think because of that, conversations that feminists and decolonial scholars have been having for decades about about power and positionality are becoming really central and and I don't I mean maybe that's too optimistic of a take but I think a lot of what we what we teach in Arc and and to to kind of return to the question that you asked about about what's you know what what's universal I think the thing that I would cling to and, and connect to Peter is that thinking about power and positionality and how decisions and choices that the researcher makes and who the researcher is, and how the researcher enters the, you know, their field site, how they interact and engage with their interlocutors, how their research assistants or or other, you know, others adjacent or involved in the research process, like drivers, translators, etc., end up shaping the responses that that people might give, or how researchers are perceived in the course of their research is increasingly gaining. Um, Salience and attention across a variety of different methodological and epistemological traditions. And I think the the idea that there are methods or approaches that are immune to thinking about these questions is a bit of a relic of the past. And so in that sense, I think that that there's a way to embrace methodological pluralism. While st- remaining true to the this set of of kind of fundamental truths and realities, which can be reflected in the idea that that our own identities in the field and our own entry into our research sites and topics shape everything about what we come to know and 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 that you also this idea that you can't do empirically ri- rigorous research without centering. Both ethics and kind of deep contextual field knowledge or knowledge of your research site and subject, um, in, in the research process. And so I think that's, that's one of the key messages that we try and, and explore collectively throughout the ARC training. And I guess I want to just say one last thing before I turn, turn back, which is that I think a lot of these ideas are grounded fairly firmly in, in feminist research praxis. And as many feminist scholars have so eloquently reminded us, systems of gender, race, and class render power and privilege particularly visible. So I I don't think it's a a coincidence that that feminists and scholars of color have been at the forefront of of this conversation um, and and thinking about the ways in which our existing research practices work to reproduce systems of oppression and violence. And I think the the ways that these conversations are becoming infused with a recognition of the the value and and the validity of, uh, and the the kind of um, authenticity of the data that we end up collecting and creating and and producing and putting into the world is is something that we can we can all begin to 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 recognize and appreciate and integrate into our into our research practices.
0: Thank you for pointing out that there are all of you for pointing out the the things that we have to be optimistic about in our field because I think that's we can we could all use a bit of optimism like just in general right now. I want to turn now to the question of how we use our personal experiences as field researchers in our teaching. Uh, That was part of the motivation, of course, for why Peter and I wanted to put this this book together. How do you share, do you share your experiences in the field in your classroom when you're teaching Mm. field research? And if you do, how do you do that? What What does that look like? Let me start with Sarah.
2: I can't imagine teaching field methods and not putting my experiences on the table, in part just because it illustrates, but it also, I think a word that we haven't used yet, I think all three of us have been dancing around it, is humility, right? Like, I think our students should have the opportunity to learn from places where we have made mistakes or feel that we can do things better because none of us, or at least I'm not perfect, Millie and Jesse might be, I'll leave that for them to to interrogate. But I think that you want to say really honestly, like, look, I went, in with these assumptions and they were wrong. Mm -hmm. I think that that's part of the process and that often, especially for PhD students who were sort of training to do this kind of research, it's really important to say like, it is okay to be wrong because we learn from that, right? Maybe one of the things that I think is most interesting, and this goes a little bit back to the last question, is this current moment, if you will, or the historical rupture that has come about with COVID, I think has actually caused a lot of people, and this gets to Millie's point a bit, to question a lot of the assumptions about how they saw politics, whether it was in terms of of American exceptionalism, or how they experience gender, or how they think about certain cases, for example, or that there are just cases sitting out there at all, or how violence comes into politics, or how emotion plays in politics. Because I think that many American political scientists in particular are feeling things in a certain way for the first time in their experience and sort of negotiating through what it's like to be in the position that they're in. So this is where I'll give a plug for the comparativists who are like, yep, a lot of us have had some of these experiences before, including comparativists who treat the United States as a comparative case. And there's a whole comparative politics newsletter about that. But anyways, going back to the personal experiences, I talk really frankly with my students about moments where I think I went too far, which I think is, is something that we don't talk about enough in training. I talk about things where I made what I think was a really awesome decision in terms of just a tiny follow-up question that made all the difference or like taking the time to stop an interview, talking about joy in fieldwork and the understanding that fieldwork is so often, and we use this term fieldwork, so like broadly, but sort of the ebb and flow of fieldwork and learning how to give oneself a break and think about balance and thinking about how to expand how we see a political well, Process or set of dynamics or sites. But I also do things like when we talk about ethnography, I'll bring in what we call, what in some pieces is called human artifacts, like all of these things that I collected over the course of my fieldwork, whether it's a glittery watch or a kofiya or a t shirt or a keychain or whatever, and sort of talk about how to think about cultural production, right? But I would also say that these are all techniques, like I'm talking about training my PhD qual methods class here. Or or field methods class here. But I also incorporate methods training into my master's classes. Like often, public policy or international policy students are getting a lot of statistics. But one of the things that comes in really handy for them in their careers is being able to do, for example, semi-structured interviews is thinking through if you were in the position of making policy or in terms of being like a humanitarian aid practitioner, the ethical choices that they have to make, thinking about things like discourse analysis. So talking about archives and accessing them, but also having them practice interviewing and bringing in examples of like, here's what it's been like to interview different people in the field. But I've also done in one of my classes, a discussion that's basically like a risk analysis of a trip I took with a humanitarian aid agency across the Nineveh Plains and asking them, okay, we've been talking about militias and non-state actors and also state militaries. And if you were taking this drive, how, would you think about each step of it, right? How are you thinking about interacting with these actors, And I think that it's important to sort of bring spaces to life and to demystify, but also to humanize, particularly when we're teaching people who will be practitioners specifically, because often so much of what they learn is in the abstract or from the point of view of a particular political stance. And one of the things that many of us who have done immersive extended fieldwork, one of the things that we can do is to say like, well, no, here is the perspective from a, a set of practices that humanizes, right? And that that makes for better policy too.
4: Can I follow up quickly on something that Millie said that it really touched me? And I certainly don't want to contradict anything that was said. I want to just say briefly that the point about optimism being important, I realized that my answer before to changes in the field came across as kind of a downer. I think this is a terribly exciting time to be a political scientist working in this space, not just for the reasons that Millie discussed, but also because it's a time when there is so much data at our fingertips. And I think this is a really big change from the time when a lot of classic methods textbooks were written. And that's frankly part of why I wrote the book, Ora. And that's part of this, is that there are some really dated things written in the 1990s or the early 2000s about doing the first survey. I can almost guarantee if you're a first-year graduate student listening to this podcast, there is downloadable data out there that you can get with a library card about the place that you are interested in. And so there's just so much at our fingertips now that there wasn't before. And that means that it has some advantages for people who don't go to the field at all because they can fake it with desktop dissertations that look like the kind of thing that in the past Mm. only field workers would have been able to do. And they can kind of cheat. But I think it's also a huge opportunity for people to take that next step with really exciting field work that is coming back with genuinely magical data to make a convincing case buoyed by all of this new connection. And it's mostly technological. Being able to recruit huge samples of Somalis over the telephone because everyone in Mogadishu has a cell phone, that would have been science fiction in the 1970s. There's a lot of examples of things like that. So I'll leave it at that.
3: Millie, do you have anything you'd like to add to this? I mean, I think Sarah's response was really was really powerful, actually. But I guess maybe I'll just quickly say on uh, specifically on the question of of personal experiences and and thinking about mistakes. I think there's a maybe a nuance or a difference in in um, kind of being ready to be wrong. And I think that is a really you know imparting and sharing where we've been wrong and where we've kind of had to rethink our assumptions based on stuff we've learned is is a really um crucial part of of learning. That said, I I do worry a bit about a conversation. Um, and this is just to kind of piggyback a little bit off off some of the the stuff Sarah was saying. I know we've talked about this a lot between us in in the context of of conversations we've had around ARC, that feeds back into what i was saying before about learning on the job and kind of making mistakes and i think there's a there is a kind of confessional tone to the conversation at the moment not this conversation specifically but the broader conversation in the in the discipline that 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 also kind of gives the impression that it's it it's like okay to make mistakes. And while I fully recognize that we all make mistakes in the field all the time, I also, I'm kind of still working through, I think, how to make sense of, or how to square that that humility and that kind of ability for self-reflection and sharing where you've gone wrong with a, a kind of valid validation or a legitimization of the idea that it's kind of okay to treat your field site mm-hmm. as your learning experience and in ways that has real damaging implications for people so I, I mean I don't know that's just a, a kind of throwaway comment in a, in a sense because I'm, I'm still working through that myself and that's not to kind of call out or pass judgment on 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 anybody for talking about mistakes that they have made. And I think that's, it is a really important part of the learning experience. But I think we also need to be cognizant and wary as a, as a, a kind of, as a field that, that we also don't kind of create or reinforce this idea that that the field site is is a classroom. and I, I just, yeah, I don't quite know how to think through that. but in terms of of sharing personal experiences, I, I I guess the other very brief thing I'll just say is is I know we've been talking a lot about teaching field research and our you know our residential program is is framed as a training program but it's really not about us imparting knowledge or kind of teaching the students or the participants that attend we 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 are really all learning together and thinking collectively through difficult challenges, problems, dilemmas, decisions that we might encounter in the field. And this, you know, these, the answers to these questions are different for every person. And there's nobody who can really kind of tell, you know, tell somebody else what's the right call to make in a particularly challenging situation, because everything is so situational and contextual in, in you know, in, in the course of, of doing your research. So I think one of the the things that we all try, you know, that we try and learn Together and think through collectively in ARC certainly is is how to how to build confidence and trust your your judgment and your instincts um, when faced with really difficult decisions in in the course of. of- doing your research. I don't know if that made any sense, but.
2: Can I actually add on to this really quickly? Please. And I think the lessons of having a community with whom you can check in and say like, this is, and we know that our students do that, that they talk to each other in the field, that they get in touch with us or with people they've met through the annual conference, but that in part the isolation that people can feel in the field is part of what leads to questionable decisions. So the idea that you have a network, right? You can stop and take a minute and consult with people. But going back to what Millie's saying about this sort of like confessional trend... I agree completely. Mm -hmm. And I'm really glad that she brought it up. I wonder if what I, the term that I thought of was tone, right? And I think it's really different to like, and again, we've referred to it as outdangering, and you hear it in like job talks like, oh, yeah, I was hanging out with all these guys and like I almost got killed and there was this explosion and like I'm fine. Well, like, what if you weren't, right? And also, why were you there? What methodologically justified you being there? What were the set of ethical choices that led to you being there? Was there actually a good reason for you to be there. I think that's very different from unpacking assumptions that we have picked up because of how the sociology of knowledge works in our discipline. Like the idea of like, oh, I went out to study this and those cases were not even cases. Like that was not a relevant topic on the ground, for example, right? Or this is not how people experience this phenomenon, for example. So saying I was wrong mm-hmm. about that, I think is very different from this sensationalist thing which you especially see incentivized in job talks. Mm -hmm, I know I've experienced mm -hmm. it where people are like, oh yeah, tell me how you got along with these men. And I was like, that is literally a question that someone asked me at a job talk once. And I was like, yeah. oh, there is so much to unpack about that question. But it was inviting me basically to make this sensationalist like, oh yeah, guns, bombs, right? And it was like, no, I was talking to people about the fact that they didn't have healthcare and had terminal cancer and were wondering how they were going to support their families, right? Like, let's talk about that lived experience in that reality. But the incentive there, I did not get that job, by the way, partially because of how I responded to that question, which was not my best moment. But no, real talk, I, I think that this is where humility comes in. This is where tone comes in. And this is where incentives come in, right? And how senior scholars in particular encourage people to adopt, I think, these really dated ways of talking about, quote unquote, the field or certain populations. And that that is something that all of us as colleagues who have power in a department need to shut down.
0: You know, I think you've identified something really useful here, both of you, Sarah and Millie, which is that. There is a huge difference between having an honest conversation about something that went wrong while you're doing field research and what you learned from it and bragging about the time you narrowly missed, you know, getting hit by a falling anvil, right? Or, you know, or or whatever that anvil is a metaphor for in, in field research. And I think that's yeah. a that's a really important distinction that I think we can all do well to bear in mind as we talk about this stuff. Jesse, do you want to, do you want to weigh in on this? How do you talk about your experiences doing field research to your students? How do you use that as a teaching tool?
4: Well, first off, I want to say I completely agree about the problem of humble brag. And I think that the importance of people having authority in the departments using that authority to try to devalorize extreme field work is a real problem that I hope my book Mm -hmm. helps address. I talk really openly in terms of my pedagogy about PTSD. I always plug talk therapy. And I try to make it clear that I almost didn't get the professional success that I have had because of all of the baggage Mm. that came home from the field with me. And in the last couple chapters of the book, I write about this with, I think, more honesty than I intended to when I started writing about paranoia and imposter syndrome and secondary trauma, which is the process of being re-traumatized by revisiting your field notes and survivor guilt and all of that kind of stuff that I just don't think gets talked about very much. And so I think that's Mm -hmm. my answer to your question in the spirit that this conversation has evolved. I have some other kinds of thoughts, but they're not really responsive to the vector that we're on. And I think this is a very good conversation to be a part of. That's how I'd answer that.
1: That makes sense. and if I could add something, I mean I think that all of you had really articulate points mm-hmm. about you know the difference between I think Sarah said before and we've invoked this in previous podcasts, kind of the Indiana Jones model of, of field research, which we all you know find abhorrent for a variety of reasons. And I think one of the ways to distinguish it is to think about you know, are you doing this type of research to kind of you know validate or improve your own reputations, quote unquote, or for yourself, or is it about you know actually learning about and engaging with and potentially improving in some ways the lives or knowledge of a community? And I think that when you make that distinction, at least for me, that that's how you know you can think about whether you're doing things the right way and the way that you're talking about them. Is it about burnishing kind of your own quote unquote, you know reputation versus the engagement that you have? But uh, in any case, this has been a wonderful conversation. We could talk about this for you know many more hours, and I hope that we will in other contexts. But I just wanted to wrap by allowing uh, each of you to say a little bit about how they could learn more from the various platforms and publications and whatnot that you have. so, uh, for Millie and Sarah about Arc, you know, it's obviously you have a great website, etc. Can you talk a little bit about how people can engage with your consortium, how they can apply for the summer program, what the plans are for that going forward? And then I'd love to turn to Jesse and hear about, you know, when exactly is your book coming out, and you know, how can they engage with you? So let's start with uh, Millie and Sarah.
3: Yeah, sure. I mean, I just very quickly, I, I guess I'll say, um, please do take a look at the website if you're interested. I, I would urge everybody to go to the website. If only for the bibliography, the resources that we have compiled are really extraordinary. I think, um, in terms of the the kind of volume of stuff that has been written on this over the last um, decade and 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 even prior to that. And I think if anybody has suggestions of things that they would like us to include or the, or topics that they see as missing, we'd also be really grateful to hear about that. With regard to the training program, um, we're in a little bit of a kind of stasis at the moment, just because we've no idea what's happening and there are so many different ways that covid potentially changes what we're doing so we as sarah mentioned we didn't run the program last year we will be unlikely to run it this year we're still kind of thinking through what what online platform might work for some of these conversations but really you know so much uh, as we've discussed is is very hands-on and and really um rooted in in building community among the the attendees that it's it's quite difficult really to think through how we might translate this on in into an online platform but watch this space on our website you can follow us on on twitter and we will be sure to kind of keep people updated i don't know if sarah wants to add anything Well, the
2: website is (laughs) advancingconflictresearch.com. We just added an update. We try to update the bibliography twice a year. We are currently unpaid. So give us some leeway with what twice a year means or how regular of a schedule it is on. But we've been making a real effort to also bring in things from other disciplines as well. What I would mention is that especially on the issue of trauma and re-traumatization, we do have a special section on the bibliography that does deal specifically with emotions and trauma, both for research participants and for researchers. And for example, there's just been a great piece in PS Political Science and Politics by Daniel Kurd and I believe it's Kala Hummel yes yeah, so it's it's Hummel and El Kurd and it's mental health and field work there have obviously been pieces on this before the other thing that I would mention is that people are increasingly writing about teaching these topics. And for example, Christine and Dara Cohen have a new article out on teaching master students and why not to send master students in the field to do intensive research on violence as like a learning experience and issues associated with that. But the last bit that I would add is that this is not just a resource for people who are going to go and do fieldwork. I actually think of the ARC bibliography as a research for reviewers and for journal editors as well. So often, and you know, it's the phrase that all of us just like the hackles go up, like no one's ever written about this. Like, oh no, people have. And I think it's really important, especially as we're reading so many of these things. I do think that one of the great things about the last maybe five years is that there are more people who are getting into this discussion and thinking thinking really seriously about the intersection of methods and ethics. But that also means that we need to build on people who were breaking down the walls surrounding conversations around these issues. So I think it's really important that reviewers hold people who are publishing to recognizing the pathways that others have blazed. And that we also ask people when people are writing on conflicts, so things like what Jesse was talking about with desk research, like there are people who are doing research on, for example, the ethics of desk research on political violence. So people, like again, Dara Cohen, Amelia Hoover Green, Cassie Dorf who are looking at these sorts of issues. But um, these all need to be things that people are addressing, even if it's not an article about ethics or about research. These are materials that should be discussed in every single article that deals with vulnerable populations, with conflict, with fragile settings, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that it's not about one standard, it's about the various standards that we can discuss and ask how different standards should be applied to different projects and how people justify the work that they've done. Because again, going back to you, Peter, if it comes back to like, well, I wanted to look cool in a job talk, that's not a justification for research.
4: Well, if you're going to let me treat your podcast as an advertisement platform for a commercially available product. (laughs) You can absolutely go to Amazon right now and pre-order a copy or order a copy. It's available now. It's available in paperback. It's available from Columbia University Press. It is blurbed by Aura, so it must be good. And there's a lot in it that's meant to be useful for teachers. So since the purpose of this podcast is to be a teaching resource, but we've only really skimmed the surface. If you're teaching a class like this and you don't know where to get started, I'm not saying my book is the only place to get started. There's a lot of better books out there, but it does have some tables that would be good food for thought.
1: Well, thank you so much, Sarah and Millie and Jesse, for joining us today to discuss your fascinating fieldwork.
3: Thanks so much, Peter and Aura. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. It
2: was great to have this conversation. Excellent.
1: Well, for more great stories and insights on fieldwork from our guests today and over 40 other scholars, check out our book with the same name as the podcast, as well as advancing research on conflict and doing global fieldwork. As always, we'd like to thank Boston College, Clark University, MIT, and Columbia University Press for their support for the book and for this podcast. See you next time on Stories from the Field.